welcome to Seattle Centered, where two nobodies tell sensationalized stories about the great PNW. Today, we're going to butcher the story of Bertha Knight Landis, an OG Seattle feminist killjoy. First time we're going to have a female mayor. In a long-ass time. In a long-ass time. Woo. Almost 100 years. We were the first major American city to have a female mayor as of 1926, when we elected Bertha Knight Landis. Sometimes called a feminist killjoy and a blue-nosed moralist intent on spoiling the fun of the roaring 20s, Bertha Knight Landis was substantially more than a cranky old bitch subjecting the wild west town of Seattle to two turbulent years of petticoat rule. She was a master of personal branding, a port town pioneer with her fair share of personal loss, and America's first female mayor of a major city. Dun, dun, dun. Bertha was born in 1868 in Ware, Massachusetts. Can we talk about Ware, Massachusetts? I feel like that is a who's on first town, if there ever was one. Where do you live? Ware? Right? Ware, Ware Massachusetts. Ware, Massachusetts? No, that's, that's what I'm asking you. Right? Exactly. Youngest of nine children, sister of two boys and six girls. That's got to be a lot to live up to. What if, like, your sisters are really bomb and you suck? I mean, Bertha didn't suck, but, like, if she did, you're kind of the baby. How does being the baby in the family feel? I don't know. But like, my prospects of not dying of cholera are higher than those who preceded me. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a very different era. I feel like the 90s were hard, but they weren't quite 18, 1860s hard. They weren't shit your yourself to death hard. Yeah, I never worried about cholera in Port Orchard. <laughs> it said that Bertha had olive complexion, dark hair, and big black eyes. I'm a big fan of this. The New York Times quotes her as being below medium height with olive skin and drab brown hair. Can, can, can we talk about the black eyes? Right. What is that's something a great white shark has. That's famously described by Captain Quint in the movie Jaws. Big black eyes. Even in the 1860s, they're still cutting women down based on the look. Like, mm, she had drab hair. Mm. Rude. Rude. <laughs> She's also described as having a keen brightness of her eyes and that that was her most arresting feature, which I can't tell is like a compliment or an insult. I'm not sure if I'd be into that if somebody was like, well, your most arresting feature is that your face looks like a shark. <laughs> yeah, my, my first instinct would be to challenge that person to a duel, mostly just because I'm not sure if that's meant to be a compliment. Right? Her dad was in the Union Army. And after he got discharged, he was a painter for a little while. And then they moved to Worcester and he entered the real estate business, which sounds shady as hell to me. Whenever people are like, oh, he got into the real estate business. I'm like, what, what illegal shit was he actually doing? I feel like real estate back then had to be a hell of a lot simpler, though. Like there was huge swaths of the country that the government said you could just look at and be like, well, this is my land now. Also, I guess everything costs like $6. So you could just be like, well, I got a 20 on me. I'm going to buy this city block. Her mother was pretty lovable, caring for all nine children and her invalid husband. Apparently her dad was broken up so much in the war that he couldn't work by the time that she was nine. Hanging out at a desk. but I suppose I mean, the, that's the true. The Civil War was particularly brutal, especially in an era where shell shock and PTSD were... Not a thing. Not not viewed with quite the same amount of compassion that you might find in today's more 
public discourse. The children in the house were taught to rigidly uphold the law. This is We're going to come back to this a little bit later when we talk about prohibition. They weren't super religious, more that they like viewed the government in an almost religious sense for how rigidly they upheld the law. So that's cool, I guess. If you risked your life and batted your body in the sake of preserving the federal union, I mean, it stands to reason that, especially if you paid pretty heavily for victory, that you would raise your kids to be very big supporters and be listening to that cause rather than, I don't know, risk them turning into Confederate rebels, I suppose. <laughs> Her family life kind of freaks me out a little bit. She graduated from Classical High School. That's literally the name of the high school that she graduated from, Classical High School. Her older sister, Jessie, married a man named Dave. David Starr Jordan, bomb name, who quickly became the president of Indiana University. Before Mr. David Starr Jordan, all of the presidents of the university were clergymen. And it was a kind of old-fashioned institution. They relied really heavily on, like, philosophical doctrine to guide the curriculum. And uh, David, David kind of undid a lot of that. He... At 19, Bertha moves out to Indiana to live with her sister and Mr. David Starr Jordan goes to school at the University of Indiana. She helps them raise their first kid. Out of the student body of 300, only 30 or 40 were women. And I kind of got the impression that Mr. David Starr Jordan really wanted to diversify that a lot. Like in addition to being super into STEM education, he also wanted more bitches. Bertha studies in the newly minted Department of History and Political Science. <gasps> Ooh, gasp. Like, that seems so weird to me that that would be new. Like, you know what we should add to this college? Political Science. Like, what? A product of those, those times. At the same time in medicine, we were realizing that maybe sawing wounds off in the middle of a battle wasn't the most ideal way to treat injuries. Her future husband was also attending Indiana University and he was in a geology department, also newly minted. Whatever gets your rocks off. Oh, Mr. David Starr Jordan is apparently just rocking the boat and throwing all kinds of science out there. She graduates in 1891 at 23 and immediately returns to Worcester to live with her old ailing mother. Some point in there, her dad died. I'm not super surprised, because Union soldier, that's fine. Her, her fiancé, we've moved on to fiancé, Henry, his name is. Henry goes on to Harvard to study for his master's. So they're apart. They have a really long engagement. They write letters. It's super dramatic. Bertha is not super pleased to be back home. Her mother is all alone and all of her siblings have left. And she's worried that when it comes time for her to get married, when Henry graduates, that she's just gonna abandon her mom. And, and that is kind of stressful for her. But Henry is really cute and writes her all these letters. It's like, oh, keep your chin up, honey. You got this. So you start to see that he's really supportive of her and her feelings and her ambitions for life right from the very start. And that's really, really cool. So he graduates in 1893, and they are married on January 2nd, 1894. Her brother-in-law becomes president of Stanford University and recommends Henry Landis to professor of geology at UW. In 1895, one year later, at 27 years old, Bertha Knight Landis 
lands in Seattle. Uh, the University of Washington was in a really rough spot at the time because Congress had cut appropriation funding from $90,000 to $78,000. And professors are taking a real hit in wages during the first seven years that the Landis's were there. UW saw four different presidents during this time, and in 1914, President Thomas Kane was replaced by acting President Henry Landis. They later went on to build a house at Brooklyn and 45th, taking up residence in the university neighborhood, where Bertha Knight Landis would live for much of her life. Now, the U District was not what we think of today. Like, downtown Seattle, you know, they had they had a couple boardwalks, they had some paved streets, things, things, were, things were moving and shaking in Seattle. The U District is what? How far away is U District? It's a distance in that day because you have to go over quite a bit of rough geography to get there. I mean, we're talking before automobiles. Oh, for sure. You're, you're taking a carriage and maybe a boat over to get there. That's true. When did they, when did they do the cut? If there's... The cut was the cut was a decade or two after that. Oh, okay. They finished the cut as World War One was winding down. Cool. So you could you could drive all the way there. If they'd cut the cut, you would need to take a boat, presumably. I don't think you could drive all the way there either. If the lake is raising and sawing, then yeah, there's probably mud flats between here and there. There were several plots of land in that area that were owned by individuals who had personally cut through tiny troughs to help get lumber from Lake Washington to Lake Union. And in so doing, had kind of messed up that chunk of land in terms of making it drivable. Some of these tunnels were canyons, I guess, were no more than like maybe four feet across, but like 30 feet deep. And people would <laughs> sit by with a stick at the top of that incline and help nudge the lumber through. So what I'm hearing is getting from downtown Seattle to UW just on its own. Probably wasn't a quick adventure not it's not quick now but it was probably <laughs> even slower then a description of the u-dub from the era it's made up of a few unpaved streets wooden sidewalks cottage homes bits of lawn on which the cows from the green lake farms were daily trespassers but it was a warm-hearted and strictly democratic community almost entirely made up of people in their 20s and 30s all of whom from somewhere else and all ambitious and confident of achievement Okay, basically the antithesis of what it is now. Full of hope, kind of dingy, instead of full of despair, definitely dingy. Well, I would like to think that most attendees of the University of Washington at least arrive with the hope that they will be able to achieve great things. They built a cute little house in a neighborhood that didn't really exist yet. They had three kids. First, they had Catherine, who dies at nine from a tonsillectomy. Okay, so that's that's rough. Tonsillectomy? Ooh, I don't I don't even want to think about like. Okay, so we're gonna take your tonsils out, and then two weeks from now, you're gonna die a horrible gurgling death. Yeah, welcome to the 1800s, man. Woof. Their second child, Roger, didn't survive infancy. No surprise there. Their last son, Kenneth, goes on to become a geology professor like his dad. Oh, so cute. They got one and it stuck. They didn't kill Kenny. Two years after Catherine dies, they adopt another nine-year-old named Viola. Now, I can't find a lot about Viola, but I gotta tell you, that's a little weird. That's like when babies died in Victorian England and they just named the baby the same thing as the next baby. They're like, oh, well, Jimmy fell down the well. Had another baby named him Jimmy. That doesn't seem super healthy. 
Also, Bertha's old blind uncle comes to live with them. Mostly sounds like the, the setup for a pilot of a very bad comedy TV show. Right? That de that definitely sounds like D-list TV. Strong, and independent, pioneer, mayor, woman. But her family comes to visit? Right? <laughs> Somewhere in there, they, uh, they stop living in the little two-story house that they built on 45th. And they move into the newly finished Wilsonian building at 47th and University. University. All the while that Henry is working at the UW and working his way up and getting tenure, I assume the tenure exists, He's working hard. He is a great professor. He becomes the dean of his department at some point. At some point, he stops just being Henry Landis and he starts being Dean Landis. He's obviously good at his job. Bertha's no slouch. She joins clubs and women's groups and has luncheons and discusses lady stuff, but not lady stuff like we think of now. She's, you know, she's getting stuff done. She's not bored. One thing that is important to note throughout all of this is the timing of what is going on on a national and political and regional scale during this time when Henry Landis and Bertha Knight Landis are building their life together here in Seattle. She's arriving in 1895, just at the kind of birthing point of the Northwest socialist, left-leaning, kind of Marxist, IWW-leaning movement. Within her first decade of living in the Pacific Northwest, Teddy Roosevelt, becomes president of the United States. And in the following decade, and really two decades, the idea of progressivism and using government as a tool by and for the common people rather than the rich or industrial powers, this is something that's really resonating in the world immediately around her. During the time when she is volunteering at these clubs and becoming politically active and inspiring other women to become politically active, you see events like the Everett Massacre or the, the drunken riot that set ablaze the IWW headquarters in Seattle during one of our gold rush celebrations. Bertha Spearhead's affair put on by the University of Washington to sort of help with unemployment in the area and the fair centered around it's a women's educational exhibit for Washington manufacturers. The mayor at the time, Mr. Hugh Caldwell, loves it. Just thinks this is the greatest thing. Bitches in industry, five out of five, would exhibit again. He appoints her to a five-member commission to deal with unemployment on almost a more like micro level rather than Washington State for the city. She does so well that another, another dude on the committee suggests that she run for office. Now, I don't know if it was his suggestion that really spurred it or the fact that she's a bad bitch who's good at her job, but it was this guy's idea, maybe. Both she and Henry believed that political office was a natural extension of her work as a housekeeper, which seems kind of backwards to our modern logic and understanding of oppressive systems. But at the same time, she and Henry, in being supportive of her, she took something that had been historically used to deny women agency and a voice in politics and used that as an argument as to why she, in particular, needed to be the one with the loudest voice at the table, which was a pretty awesome, awesome turn of events for that era. I don't see, I don't hear that as anti-feminist. I don't hear that as anti-feminist. I think that that is 
a, a very simple extension of Lockean philosophy. You've got you've got a micro community in the home. There there's absolutely a hierarchy in the home. Don't do that, or I'll tell your father. Like just wait until your mother gets home. Like that kind of hierarchy exists in a family unit, and and it kind of it does extend to to the greater community. So while it's well, it's kind of messed up to throw her being female under the bus like that. I don't necessarily think that it's wrong per se no definitely definitely not wrong especially in the i mean she used it and commanded it to present a really effective argument to the people of seattle that she was the right person to clean up what was viewed as a very corrupt city city body politics 45 years old she is granted the right to vote with the 19th amendment and in the 1922 municipal elections the people of seattle do a bunch of super radical and way out of left field stuff bertha knight landis is elected alongside another woman miracle to the city council both of whom become the first female city council members in the city and during the mayoral race at this time the eventual winner is Edwin Doc Brown now Brown was a socialist and a journalist and a dentist he founded a socialist newspaper here in Seattle in addition to his on-again off-again dentistry practice during the 1922 elections a lot of people had come out to decry him for being a socialist and try and use this label negatively and he embraced it and adopted it as something that he would use to help describe himself and it was a kind of a landmark thing that Seattle in 1922 all the rest of the country is caught up in this red scare trying to stamp out leftism Seattle elects a socialist mayor and two female council members in the first major elections since the 19th amendment has passed I think that people forget that we have always been this socialist hellhole what was that headline recently Something oh. about how Seattle's a socialist hellhole. Yeah, a socialist hellscape or something yeah. to that effect from that semi-retired MTV disc jockey. So this Doc Brown was never a Wild West guy. This Doc Brown was the son of the founder of a newspaper in Olympia, what was then, I guess, Steelix. So Doc Brown, the gunslinger, different dude from Edwin Doc Brown. What? Yeah, totally different people. Okay, so this doc, this doc Brown is really, really boring. This dude had glasses. He was born in 1864. He would have been much too young to be the Doc Brown oh. of Wild West fame. Instead, this he was the son of a newspaper man. He was a newspaper man himself. Boring as hell. He, I mean, he was kind of boring. He did adopt socialist and progressive policies at a time where it was really radical to do so. But at the same time, he was really willing to turn a blind eye to some things that maybe should have been dealt with during the, the beginning of prohibition seattle famously had the good bootlegger just a lot of public officials on his payroll including most likely police chief william b severance at least for a time oh we come back to that that actually yeah the bootlegging thing rears its head later kind of kind of like as a double-edged sword almost bertha gets elected to city council she wins with just a landslide twenty-two thousand votes just a crap load of people. She's backed by tons of women's organizations, volunteer groups. It's a really grassroots, 
hey, have you heard about this lady? She's a real nice lady situation. One of the first things that she sets about dealing with on city council is, is this concept of dance halls. So Bertha Landis really was a prohibitionist. She, she didn't want any tomfoolery anywhere. Not necessarily because she thought it was bad or immoral, but because it was the law. Which is kind of where we come back to this almost self-righteous, law-abiding citizen cross that she carries around. So initially, she wanted to shut down the dance halls in the cities. Three dance hall workers came to her her house, her apartment, and, and they're trying to make a case for themselves. And they explain that, yeah, it's not the greatest thing. It's not the most glamorous thing. But they can make 4 or $5 a night instead of $13 a week in a factory or $2 a night in a restaurant. They're doing a job. They're making money for their family. This is this is how it is. And they persuade her to, instead of completely shut down the dance halls, to just some more heavy-handed regulation. And I thought it was really cool that she met with them. And she's like, well, you know, they were a bit crass, but, you know, they were well-spoken and they made their points. And, and I'm going to do what's best for the city and what's best for the people. A couple years later, in 1924, Doc Brown, who is at this point, and been mayor for two years, winds up being summoned to attend the Democratic National Convention in New York. So during the time he's going to be absent, he appoints one of the city council members to be interim mayor in his absence. He chooses Bertha Knight Landis, which is a pretty incredible decision for the time. She becomes temporary mayor, essentially, of Seattle. The first thing she does is, rather than just kind of waiting around and continuing with the status quo that her boss had left her in charge of, she she decides to start cleaning up the city immediately, taking names and kicking ass along the way. We come back now to Police Chief Severance. Now, Severance is a corrupt cop if ever there was one. He was particularly lax in how he would treat bootleggers and the people who were circumventing prohibition. Just kind of a sleazy dude. <laughs> he was, was a greasy cop for sure. Was, was such that Henry <laughs> Olmsted himself, who was kind of a criminal type Coon thought that Severance should be fired from his job, not because he was unwilling to be on the take, but quite the opposite. He was a little too greedy and a little too crazy, even to be a corrupt public official. When cop turned rum runner thinks that the police chief is a shady bastard, he's probably a really shady bastard. Right? Which leads me to wonder, was Severance particularly violent or particularly prone towards bloodshed? Because one of Olmstead's one of Henry Olmstead's primary rules for the people who work for him is you don't carry guns money is not worth more than life which is part of why he was known as the good bootlegger because he was very strict in trying to avoid bloodshed or violence in making a shit ton of money off of illegal booze so she fires his ass she cites two things number one he's corrupt and he won't clear out the corruption below him Number two, insubordination. Apparently, he ran his mouth to her in some letters, and she wasn't having any of it. So her boss, Doc Brown, is off in New York, and she just starts canning people right and left. Doc Brown comes back from the Democratic National Convention and sees the smoking ruins of what lays in her wake. And immediately, he starts 
somewhat justifiably freaking the fuck out. <laughs> First things he does upon his arrival is he reinstates police chief Severin. And while there doesn't seem to be any record of the exact reasoning why, it does fly in the face of everything that Bertha Knight Landis had done during her time as temporary mayor. While she had been trying to clean the city up, his first actions upon return are making the city, at least perception-wise, to be dirty again. In reinstating a clearly corrupt public official, Doc Brown loses the trust of a lot of the people who had initially helped him achieve his status as mayor. See, this is what I don't understand. Bertha Landis had not a lot of love for Doc Brown. Did she hate him before he left to the DNC? In which case, like, what was he thinking when he put her in charge? Or B, did she like him okay, and then he came back, undid all of her hard work, and she was like, oh, hell no, this guy. It seems like, at first glance at least, like it might may well just be a differing style of service in particularly their philosophy towards civil service. Everything we have from the records of the time seems to indicate that both of them held pretty progressive ideas for their age. Both of them were big supporters of public utilities and essentially working to protect the everyday people of the city. But at the same time, Doc was a lot more willing to turn a blind eye towards things that may have been illegal, but weren't necessarily damaging to public life. And his approach to prohibition was one such thing. He didn't himself drink, but he supported the right of the public to be able to make that choice for themselves. Whereas, as you noted, Bertha Knight Landis believed that the public probably deserved that right, but until such time as the government said that it was legal to do so again, that it was her duty as a civil servant to clean that kind of stuff up. They both seem to have a lot of similar policy positions, but the kind of lawful good versus maybe neutral good or chaotic good approach really seems to not really engender themselves <laughs> fondly towards one another. Bertha runs again for city council in 1925. She gets reelected. This time, her campaign is run by four women and herself, all from the club scene. And I don't mean, like, oomch, oomch, oomch club scene. I mean, like, you know, ladies who lunch and get stuff done. They do it on the cheap. They refuse to take money from anyone. Number one, citing that that would just be difficult to deal with. But also that if you take money from somebody, you're going to have to, you're going to have to slide them something back later. And they didn't want to deal with that. They were like, I'm not going to take money from you and I'm not going to give you a job just because I took money from you. On a dime, they run another grassroots campaign. They get Bertha reelected. This, this time, she's, she's okay, but it's not a landslide the way that it was the first time. So she's sitting on city council. Things are going great, getting her job done. And it comes time for the mayoral race. Doc Brown is up for re-election, and by this time, Bertha's, Bertha's over it. She's super over Doc. She, she initially says, like, I'm not going to run. I'm not going to run for mayor because I don't need to be mayor. I don't want to be mayor. But honestly, if nobody runs or nobody who looks like they're going to win is running against Doc Brown, I guess, I guess I'll do that. The day for registration comes and she waffles back and forth a couple times and finally she's like, all right, all right, fuck it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna run against Doc Brown. I can't stand this guy. So she runs against Doc Brown. At the time, just sort of good news, bad news for her, the famous rum trial of 
Volmstadt comes up. So he's a police bootlegger. You know, she's been a long proponent of clean living, and there's some speculation thrown against police chief Severns, who she fired and then was reinstated. So she kind of gets to be like, see? See what I told you about this? Look at this. And the public, the public listens. They're like, oh, well, yeah, I guess maybe, maybe you were right about that. There was record voter turnout, but she only wins by about 6,000 votes. So kind of by the, the skin of her teeth, she unseats Doc Brown. I mean, that's kind of a big number, quite honestly, given our population at the time. We didn't have that many people in Seattle. 6,000 people, I mean, six, if you win by 6,000 now, that might be a, quite a close race in a city of roughly 650,000 people. But at the same time, Back then, it wasn't nearly so big. That might have been a very significant margin of victory. So she gets elected as mayor of Seattle, and that's great. And she's got she's got a lot to do. But meanwhile, let's just give you a little a little side note about the economic landscape of Seattle at the time. There is a company who has slowly over the last twenty or so years been snatching up utilities and has kind of in the process created has created a monopoly here in Seattle and one of the chips on her shoulder was making sure that public utilities were serving the people she kind of pissed off the private utilities a bit in the years before Bertha got the mayor seat the city had developed a municipal utility they had also bought the trolley line from Stone and Weber, because Stone and Weber lost a whole bunch of money during World War One, and the city had instituted like a nickel fare. You weren't allowed to charge astronomical fees to ride these trolleys. So even though even though Stone and Weber had consolidated all of the trolleys into one company and they ran the electrical companies, the power of the trolleys, and all this, uh, the city kind of cleaned up and picked up these these damaged services. And one of one of Bertha's goals was to make them profitable and functional. She, you know, she tried to cut down on corruption and civic manhandling of the populace in utilities and and also turned the trolley system around. She took a completely garbage business and turned it profitable, which I think is just absolutely amazing. Sona Weber are the, the sleazy ex-boyfriend in this situation. They totally they, are. They ran these municipal services into the ground, absolutely neglected them, then let them go when they were insolvent and weak. Yep. Somebody else decides to treat them right <laughs> and give them the attention they deserve. And suddenly, Stone and Weber come back riding up on a motorcycle with their greasy-ass hair <laughs> with a bouquet of half-dead flowers asking if you want to go to White Castle for a date. It's worth noting that at the time this is going on, Knight Landis, along with many other political figures, are ruining their social standing and losing their jobs because they are choosing to enforce prohibition laws, which I guess seems kind of strange, but at the same time, in an era where we've legalized marijuana, you can kind of understand how the public's 
relationship with the intoxicant is more powerful than their their trust in the governing body in this case. Knight Landis is ordering police raids of liquor clubs all over town, which of course leads to a lot of people getting upset that they can't go to places to drink. One of the cool things that does happen during Knight Landis's tenure as mayor is that particularly in what is now a Chinese restaurant on Lake City Way, there are escape methods such as tunnels dug into the hillsides to help patrons of clubs escape at the approach of police raids. Bertha's getting shit done. She's making changes, making improvements. She's really good at her job. All the while, though, she's still maintaining this this spin where she's like, yeah, women, women can be in government. Women can be in power. This is great. But also, I'm a housewife. I'm a mother. She says at one point that... A woman should raise her family before seeking office. She preferred also the woman not be despondent on the job for a living because financial freedom encourage objectivity and independence. What she's advocating is that you not be reliant on the public service job for your livelihood. It shows the public that you are in this for their, their and everybody's best interests and not for your own interests personal enrichment. I mean, that's not terrible advice. If you don't be a politician to be a politician, be a politician to help your people. Yeah. We again come back to this very, very long Northwestern tradition of leaning very populist in, in that sense. Left-wing populism was really the way to address the people of Seattle during that time. Making enemies of people like Stone and Weber and other private interests never really leads to career longevity for progressive and or leftist politicians. In 1928, she loses to Frank Edwards, who is basically some guy that, that moneyed interests pull off a random train car, slap a hat on him, and tell him, you're going to be running for mayor of Seattle. During her tenure as mayor, she had been doing a lot of things that she believed were right, but may have rattled feathers. And when you have a powerful woman ruffling male, mostly male feathers, oh, for sure. nonstop for two years, there's going to be a great deal of political blowback. So despite having endorsements from all of the major city newspapers, a huge number of civic groups and business groups and volunteer organizations. In the 1928 election, she winds up losing to Frank Edwards. Now, Frank Edwards comes in with no name recognition, no real familiarity with the city beyond having lived in it for a short amount of time. Now, this guy is a carpetbagger, for yeah. sure. No, he's definitely a carpetbagger. He comes in with none of the recognition, but an incredible amount of money from outside, mostly utilities. He worked, yeah, he worked for utilities in eastern Washington for like a hot minute before jumping over here, and then immediately he starts campaigning. Like, he's been here for like 45 minutes and starts campaigning for mayor, and it's like a year and a half out. So this guy shows up basically out of nowhere. In 1926, with the a, year she's elected. Right, with a load of money and he starts campaigning one of the things that she did when she was working on the trolley car system is she cut out a lot of fat which i realize sounds really ruthless but if you if you find yourself in a situation where you're like can i run this business with 12 employees can i run this business with two employees and if the answer is yes to the two employees you gotta think really critically about it so i mean the long and short of it is she fired a bunch of people and those people went to work for private utilities so you got you got public servants who are out of work and they go to work for private utilities and 
and in turn they get turned around and they become campaign monkeys for this Frank Edwards guy. So you're laid off from the trolley car, Frank Edwards shows up and he's like, hey, I got six bucks, go campaign for me. And now, now you've got the inkling of a conspiracy, I think. Like this this is super shady. He refused to meet her in debate. We haven't mentioned this yet, but apparently Bertha was quite the jokester. Apparently she was funny as hell. So she decided to hold debates whether or not he was going to be there. She set out a chair for him, packed auditoriums, and then had debates with a chair. According to the New York Times, she, and I quote, laughs as she conducts these one-sided debates and appears to get as much kick out of them as her hearers and the audience is usually in an uproar. You got this bitch on stage yelling at an empty chair because that fucking guy Frank Edwards won't even show up. Which is something you see being continued today by politically powerful women in our region. You see Pramila Jayapal holding open town halls in the Republican districts where their own representatives refuse to come meet with their constituents. This also sounds very similar to the time at the Republican National Convention where Clint Eastwood argued with a chair over Obama policy. <laughs> he, so he ends up winning. Right? We've already said that. He he wins, she loses. She has this almost no crying in baseball response to it. She says that her formula for political success is courage without tears, personal charm, poise, endless physical energy, a sense of humor, but most of all, no tears. So this guy comes, dopes her out of a job, and she's just like, well, ruthlessly too. And this is this has a lot of parallels to the 2000 presidential election where there is a lot of pressure calling for a recount and calling for an investigation as to what exactly happened in this election. But Bertha Landis trying to adhere to her political philosophy and remaining magnanimous even in defeat refuses to cry foul in this instance. And it doesn't seem entirely certain whether this is because she believed that truly nothing had gone on or because she believed that as a woman it would not play well with voters to have her questioning the results of the election. But either way what winds up happening is that Frank Edwards, a, a complete stooge for oh, private utility interests winds, winds up taking office. And in a bit of irony it takes three years before the people of Seattle actually vote to recall him from office which is not a very common procedure but his blatant corruption and the way he handled particularly the city light and utilities was so offensive to the voters that they forcibly removed him prior to the end of his term. She's not she's not totally done with politics and she's not totally done being a leader in the community. So 1931 rolls around, she spearheads the committee that is lobbying city council to oppose a charter amendment that bars married women for city employment. So somebody proposes is like, well, what if you're a married woman and you can't work for the city? Like, we'll never hear from Bertha Landis again. That meddling child. <laughs> like, it sounds very Scooby-Doo to me. So she takes this one super personally and is like, I'm not fucking around with that. We're not doing it. 
We were on the right side of history on that one. Let's just say that. She also runs the city's commission for employment improvement during the depression, which means that she's helping women get jobs so that they're not on the dole. This is one of like my favorite things about her. So she starts these sewing rooms. Women are employed by the city and they sew clothes for children who are orphans or whatever, poor kids. So you got women and they're working and they're earning their keep and they're doing something kind of really hyper thoughtful. And it's worth remembering that during this entire time, she's not exactly like gallivanting about and doing the rich socialite kind of thing you might expect from her and her husband being who they were. They kept her, they kept residence at that Wilsonian hotel for oh, I mean, almost, almost until, until she, she dies. To be fair, yeah. So they're not, they're not super rich socialites. Right, they're, they're across the street from the Jack in the Box. That being said, I mean, he, he is, he is the dean of his department and and they do get to do some really cool things during the depression for example the the university of washington sponsors these trips to and i quote the far east which it gotta be honest feels kind of gross to say mr and mrs landis take a bunch of students from the uw to the far east which i have to assume is china China or Japan? China and Japan. So every year for three or four summers, they go, they tour, it's wonderful, which is kind of impressive given that these tours start in 1933. Like, you know, there are people eating shoes and this woman is on a boat going on vacation every summer. So that's, that's a little weird. I feel a little weird about that. She's nearly 70. I feel like she's probably earned a transcontinental vacation. Intercontinental. In 1936, Henry becomes sick on the ride home. They call it bronchitis, but I feel like, I don't know. Given the medical records of the day, it could be. I mean, it might very well be bronchitis, but it could also be any other cough yourself to death disease. Right? You're taking a boat from here to China, taking your life into your own hands. So Henry, sorry to say, he gets sick and he dies in 1936. She decides that she's going to take the tour alone next year. She's like, this is really important. I want people to see this. This is an important educational opportunity. We're doing it. So she goes. She does it, which is kind of badass. She don't need no man to sail across the Pacific Ocean. I hope she poured one out for the homie. I, I hope she poured one out for the homie, too. She didn't drink, but. I mean, Henry was, by all accounts, a really nice and supportive dude, particularly for an era where, you know, domestic abuse wasn't recognized as a thing. Yeah, and then you've got Henry Landis, who, surprise, surprise, actually treats Bertha like she's, you know, a human fucking being with her own aspirations and her own life goals that he really and sincerely supports. She says of him being supportive, he's interested in having me live a full, rich life as he is in having one for himself. That's romantic as fuck. Right? That's for the, love. For the time, I think that that's, that's a great, a great sentiment. That's better than most people get now. Right? I know, I know couples who could, who could stand for a little of that. So... She's old. She's sick. In 1939, at 71, she kind of retires to the Wilsonian and just minds her own business. She moves to California to get out of the weather and shortly thereafter hangs out at her son's house in Ann Arbor and dies at 75. So in the, the scope of her life, she was born three years after the conclusion of hostilities in the Civil War. And she winds up dying as World War II is raging. So in her lifetime... She became enfranchised. She got the right to vote. For sure. She 
became the first woman to become mayor of a major major American city. She lived through a countless number of really just gruesome wars and conflicts that this country was involved in. And she was, I mean, really just one of the power players, regardless of gender, in this region for 30 to 40 years. I didn't find any genuinely negative stuff about her. Honestly, all of the negative stuff about her is like, mm, she's kind of a party poofer. And not like she was rude or like she was a bitch. Nothing, nothing genuinely negative about her personality, which I think is kind of impressive. Like I think if I had to live through all of my kids die, the streets are mud, I don't get to vote, everybody's mean to me because I've got a vet, like I might be kind of grouchy. And I didn't hear one thing about her. They were just like, she's super friendly, she's so funny but she's a she's you know she's a she's a party pooper like okay if the worst thing somebody's saying about you is that you're a party pooper i think that you totally nailed early seattle right i mean the election she lost against edwards i mean that wasn't a landslide victory for him and a lot of what was alleged to have contributed to it was, in her words, sex prejudice, just because she was a woman, and also the fact that she had been doing things like raiding speakeasies and cleaning up corruption and trying to, in some cases, to make city services more brutally efficient. But she did all of those things, she ruffled feathers, and she still almost won again. It's easy to look at her single term being just a product of a very, very sexist times. She damn near won that second term. And I mean, in that in that situation, you can see a lot of parallels between what she's done and the the long period where we had two senators and a female governor for Washington State, and the current moment where we have a mayoral race that will almost certainly end with a woman heading city hall. 